You're listening to the Be The Bridge Podcast with Latasha Morrison. Well, hello, this is Latasha Morrison, and I am the host, and I am also the founder and president of Be The Bridge. And I am so excited today because we have Dr. Rios here, and we are going to have a great conversation. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Rios. And so I just want to read a little bit about her, um, and this is someone you need to get to know. Dr. Rios has a number of passions, but one thing is certain. She has always been an advocate for the healthy local church and a supporter of people who lead in those spaces. Um, She's been known for her work in education, faith-based communities, nonprofits, as well as her writing. And she lives um, currently in Florida. We'll get her to explain that a little bit later, but she has also served as the assistant professor of Christian education and the executive director of advancement um, of a college. Um, She started the Urban Ministry Conferences in New York and drew hundreds of people to learn more about being effective urban missiologists, practitioners, and pastors. And so I just want to bring her on and she can actually tell you a little bit more about her, her space and leadership and some of the things that she's contributed to and what she's doing right now and where she, um, where she resides. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Elizabeth. And, um, I'm so glad to have you here, but if you could just explain, I know I'm reading your bio, but you can probably uh, bring a little more clarity to this um, to tell us where you're living now, what you're doing, and just some of the work, explain some of the work that you've done in this space of leadership. Sure. So first, let me just say thank you for having me on. It's always a a great honor to have people um, appreciate what you do and bring to the world. So I, as uh, also appreciate what you do in the world. So I'm, I'm very honored to be on your podcast. So thank you. As far as myself, I think women have a way of, um, having multi passions and, um, we have, we wear a number of different hats and that's definitely what has happened in my life. I uh, was born and raised in New York city and the low East side of Manhattan, uh, during a time when there was a lot of gang infestation and violence. And, um, what really saved me from being a statistic was going to a local church. Um, my, my uncle was the one who introduced me to, to, uh, church and uh, he took me to church. He would pick me up all the time when I was uh, living in Brooklyn, he would pick me up and, um, take me to church in Manhattan. Eventually as I grew, I would pray and ask God, God, if you love me, if you want me to serve you, can you please make sure that my mom moves to Manhattan so I could be closer to the church? And, and if that happens, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And then mm-hmm. lo and behold, um, we went from the tenement to the George Jefferson dream of moving uh, to the east side. But we uh, ended up in the projects and that was good enough for me. We had a view uh, on the 12th floor of, uh, next to the East River. And for me, that was moving on up. And um, I stayed there until I got married and uh, was in, you know involved in the church and um since a young age, since the age of 11, I, I started getting involved in the church. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, I live now in South Florida and uh, near Miami in Miramar. And I uh, am involved in uh, on, on a national level working with uh, black and brown church planters 
who are interested in uh, planting in urban communities. And, you know, I've evolved from, you know, I was a pastor for a while. I was an executive pastor. I was a co-pastor. I've been an Assemblies of God minister for uh, the duration of my marriage, actually. So about 30 years. And, um, you know, just uh, worked in various different places and was introduced to justice and urban ministry through the work of the Latino Pastoral Action Center in the Bronx through my uh, spiritual dad and mentor, Reverend Dr. Raymond Rivera. So through, through that process of working with him and being exposed to, to leaders that were black and brown, um, which was the first time I ever saw that, um, I was able to see that there was another way, another path, that I could continue my education, that I can actually uh, you know, leave a footprint in this world and uh, ended up just doing urban ministry conferences and empowering women through the Center for Emerging Female Leadership. So I've done a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, it's really all about helping people find their passion, pursuing their purpose, and and being educated to um, pursue what it is that they feel God put them on on earth to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, in a formal way. I, I don't always advocate that everybody has to go get a degree, even though education is a pathway out of poverty. But um, I, I do believe that there's a lot of informal ways that that we learn. And, and my journey began that way. So I definitely do not begrudge it. Yeah, that's so good to hear. I I think one of, you know, one of the ways that I came in contact with your work was through Freedom Road um, and just some of the work that you're doing with Lisa Sharon Harper, um, working alongside of her. So I love when I'm exposed to new leaders and people who have a heart um, for the local church and um, just the, the work of justice. So tell me a little bit about this podcast is all about justice okay so tell me and when I say justice I'm referring to restorative justice so tell me a little bit about what justice means to you and how is it integrated into your space no that's a great question you know because I was just uh, talking with someone last week about this um from a from a Latino perspective you know it's not something that's been talked about a lot. Um, you know, the Black American tradition has a, a long history of addressing justice and, and civil rights. But um, the Latino community, it, it's, it, it started, even though we have a five he, 500 year history of, of Latinos being involved in social justice issues, we didn't have the language to know that it was justice. It was more um, knowing that we had to have that right living and that right relationship for restoration and bringing this shalom into our communities. But, but at, at the times when everybody was practicing these things in the Latino community, they didn't know what it was. They didn't know what shalom was. They didn't, you know, we, we weren't uh, set up in, in the academic terms. You understand? So, right. so sometimes we, for me, um, as I have evolved and, it, and I continue to evolve, it really is, you know, making wrong things right. It's really um, living mm-hmm. right and having those right relationships and having that, um, understanding of the gospel that will help you to, you know, again, leave that footprint to be a, a shalom and peacemaker in the world. Um, however that looks like, because that translates very differently to everyone. We're not all going to do the same thing. You're doing something amazing. You know, Lisa, I, I, have, I have an honor to work with her as well. And we are trying to educate people to, you know, to, to build a better world through all the things that we're doing with Freedom Road and the mm-hmm. Freedom Road Institute for Leadership and Justice. So it's, it's really about helping people to understand that justice is a God idea. It's not a Mm. liberal idea. It's not a political idea. It's a God idea. 
And, yes. and it's helping people to understand that, that um, it gets us further along. Yeah. And I think that's the misconception. Some people hear the word justice and they don't, they try to separate it from being a God idea. So I love that you said that. And, you know, as you're speaking about the, um, you know, just the, Latina community when we're we're talking about that as a whole. I know it's just like the African American community is not monolithic. It's so different, you know. And so I wanted just so that the audience knows a little bit more about you. Let's talk about your ethnic heritage and how this connects, you know, because um, I know you identify as Afro-Latina. And so I want you to kind of explain that because we want to educate people because, you know, we, we put, you know, in, in America, we like to put people in boxes, you know, we create mm-hmm. these, these categories of race and they make no sense, especially outside right. of our country, they make no sense. So let's give a little education to just kind of help people as it relates to your ethnic heritage. I, I love that because I think that, you know, we, we also know, you know, where we come from, uh, you know, the people that came before us and, and the DNA that we have flowing through our body. Um, and I think that curiosity has been lost. And if we were to be a little bit more curious, it would lead us to that education and that knowledge to help us to be the best that we can be, the best God's version of who created us, to, he created us to be. And for me, um, again, I think my... The genesis of my um, unlearning and relearning was at the Latino Pastoral Action Center in my early 20s and uh, being under the leadership of Reverend Raymond Rivera, where I was told again, because this is not a discussion that is had a lot in churches. A lot of churches don't talk about heritage. But as a matter of fact, they basically tell you to leave it at the door because once we're under the blood, everything goes away. But in reality, once we're under the blood, our heritage should be even richer. We should celebrate it even more. Um, But again, you know, westernized theology and again, not having that curiosity to question has led most of us to just accept what people say and and help them erase us. Mm. And uh, being a part of the Latino Pastoral Action Center, I was exposed to, uh, again, you know, brown and black people that were doing things for the kingdom, that were educated, that understood, uh, you know, where they came from. You know, like you said, um, the Latino community is not monolithic. We definitely do not think alike. Um, and, you know, just being in this political uh, world that we in, you could definitely tell that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm New Yorican, if you, if you want to be even more specific. I was um, a second generation uh, Boricua. And I was, like I said, born in New York City um, from by a single uh, parent mom who came from Puerto Rico in her early 20s. And I um, didn't really ex- experience um, even loving myself until very late in my life. I would say I was already in my 30s. <laughs> so please, people, whoever listens to this, don't wait till your 30s to love yourself. Um, uh-huh. You know, I, I, I really just was kind of existing. I was, I was raised in a single home, so there wasn't much discussion. I had, my mom had a high school education. I had no one around me who had any um, of knowledge of heritage and, and any of this stuff. And, and Ancestry.com wasn't around. So um, I uh, started to just learn history. And I think that's where we have to all start. What's our history? You know, the America didn't start where people tell you it started. The things that are happening here um, didn't just, you know, come out of osmosis. It came, it came from a thinking, from European thinking. And um, for me, when I found out that 
my dad um, was um, Afro Latino, I had I wanted to dig a little bit more, and uh, I, I you know thankfully yes you know ancestry.com was available. I was able to find out that I have a lot of Africa in me. And Puerto Ricans as being um, a mixed race, a mestizo race, as they say, um, you know, a lot of different uh, people make up who we are. And um, unfortunately, because again of, of Westernized thinking, a lot of Latinos, you know, identify white, um, and not just because they present themselves as white because they have white skin, but because they actually think that they are. They actually check the white box on the census. And um, it's unfortunate because they're basically giving people, the people that make the power, the, that have the power and the policies, the, the power to continue to take things away from them. Um, and it's unfortunate. Um, I, I was uh, talking to Dr. Robert Caromero last week, who actually is the author of a new book that's coming out called The Brown Church. It's coming out in May. And um, mm-hmm. he was sharing how um, uh, in this, during the civil rights movement, uh, Latinos, they, they actually went to court and they wanted not to be discriminated against. And they told the judge that, you know, uh, you, we shouldn't be discriminated against because we're not black. And the judge had to, to think about it for a little bit. And then he, he sided with them and they thought that they were doing the right thing by distinguishing themselves as white. But what they forgot is that when they went back into the real world, you know what, you, if you're not white, you're not white. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and, and the, these Latinos found out that no matter what, even if, even if somebody says you're, you're, you know, white, your experience, depending on, on what you look like and where you come from, is going to be very different. And we have so much more in common than, than, di- than difference. And so mm-hmm. as I started to investigate more about myself, and I went to, uh, with, actually I went with Lisa to um, Puerto Rico last June, and we uh, went to a town called Loisa, which was the, the biggest town um, in Puerto Rico where they had the, uh, most of the slaves um, that came to Puerto Rico, they were housed in Loisa. And uh, so it's a very uh, uh, a black community, um, you know, Afro-Latino, and um, they, they know a lot of the African history. Um, but, but it's also a part of Puerto Rico that a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with because as there is colorism in various different communities, there's also colorism in, 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 in Puerto Rico and in our culture. And, uh, and they're, you know, kind of not looked upon a lot. Um, but more and more people are realizing that they are Afro uh, Latinos and Latinas, and they are going back to Loisa to, to dig into more history. More people are writing about it. And again, I, I, what I pray for is that people will have that, that wonder again and that curiosity to not just accept what people label them as, but to do the digging and allow God to be the one to, to tell you who you are. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think that explains so much um, that we see, you know, through our lens as we're looking at this from the outside, you know, every community, like you said, is dealing with um, colorism, especially brown and black communities, you know, um, which is uh, really a product of white supremacy. And we don't realize that and how we can perpetuate the problem. Um, And so when we start talking about the basis of um, racism and, um, and, and, you know, and disunity, we start looking at this anti-blackness because no one wants to be on the bottom. No one wants to be seen, um, 
to, to appear to be like the group that is um, that is being oppressed, you know, um, you, you, you know, and so I think that speaks a lot. But as we're having this conversation and we talk about your le- um, leadership, you know, one of the things that I think um, for my heart is not just to see, um, you know, a reconciliation and to see this um where all this community, where all are flourishing, this beloved community, you know, that's the ultimate hope, you know, but when I look around, like what I think this grieving me the most is the disunity within um, groups of brown and black people. And so, I, you know, I'm thinking about racial solidarity. And I think that looking back that you mentioned is so key to people understanding their identity. And you saying, you know, like hearing your story where you didn't really understand this until you were 30 years old. And I think as a um, African-American young lady, you know, this, that was a struggle for me growing up also, you know? And so when we start talking about um, racial solidarity, you know, what does that look like for you? What does that look like when we start talking about um, the community of, um, you know, just Latin, you know, the Latinx community, um, the Asian community, the African community, you know, I think these conversations have to happen in order for us to have solidarity. What do you, how do you feel about that? That, you know, that's a great question because honestly, you know, we are so not there yet. Um, we're doing a little bit better in that area, but we still have a long way to go. And I think it's because in our own communities, we, um, still have so much to work out. And sometimes, you know, the lack of knowledge is what makes all of us perish, right? And I think sometimes we try to bring solidarity and we try to uh, um, go forward in justice uh, without necessarily looking at our souls. And I think we have to pay close attention to that development of our souls if we want to live out God's justice in the world. Because, you know, there's a direct correlation between our relationship with God and and our acts of kindness and our acts of mercy and compassion Mm -hmm. and justice. And even this desire even to have this racial solidarity, it comes from a place of of, um, having that understanding of what God wants for all of us. And, And that is nurtured through like spiritual disciplines, you know, and so I think sometimes too, you know, we, we we need to understand what solidarity means, and we need to understand, um, you know, why why it's even important as we talk about a just world. But we have to understand that it it won't come just from knowledge; it will come from our spirituality as well. So it ha- it's like a two-handed uh, thing that we have to move forward if we want to see this. It's going to come from our love and our love. The only way we could, we can love in this world is through our time with God and, and our spirituality, because it's that it, the spirituality is the mechanism um, by which we understand God's work in our souls and in the world around us. So um, I want to, I want to walk in that path of racial solidarity, but we won't get there if we don't also, as we're learning that we, we also don't work on our spirituality. And if we don't dig, dig in and le- look at our history so that we don't repeat the same things that has been done in the past, like I mentioned with that civil case with Latinos in, during the civil rights um, movement, or even now, um, a lot of the things that are going on now that are unjust have, have, have happened before, and we keep not learning, and we keep repeating right. 
Right. And I know um, one of the things you're involved with uh, is the church planning movement and church leadership. What does some of your work that you're doing um, with um, some of the, the churches in your space, uh, what does that work look like and um, how, what type of churches are being planted and, and why? I want to hear a little bit about that. Okay, great. Well, you know, I started this, I was working with another on network, but I, I was, I was a church planter uh, and I, I experienced a lot of different things, you know, some not so good. Um, one of the things that we've noticed uh, is that, you know, church planting organizations, they're mostly run by, um, you know, uh, white Americans and they, as much as many of them do want to understand us, um, they, they only want to understand us to a point um, because mm. once you start asking questions or, or saying that something is not right, then that's when they don't no, no longer want to understand sometimes. Right. So right. Um, I went through uh, some church planting organization training I planted, but I realized that, um, you know, the, the, the same uh, uh, things that you encounter in certain communities is, is not what you encounter in others. So I felt like the training was missing key components that black and brown planters needed to know. So that's why I started a passion to plant because from our training, what we do is we expose the planters that are black and brown that are interested in planting in urban communities but um, we, we expose them to the black and brown voices that have been speaking on and have lived experiences in those urban communities so that when they are reading these books and they're hashing out ideas, that they understand that this is probably what they have already seen because they probably came from an urban community, probably have experienced some type of, of urban ill in, in wherever they came from. So it wouldn't be new to them. It wouldn't be like a just a lab that you wonder. A lot of the times they've been through it and they could say, you know what, this definitely will work in my community or this definitely won't. So so we, we started Passion to Plan for that reason, to expose the black and brown uh, leaders that wanted to plant in urban communities to the black and brown voices. Because when you go to seminary, when you go to these church planting trainings, the people that are doing most of the talking are the white guys. The books that they're giving you are mostly, you know, Western theology. So um, we wanted to show them that there's there's a whole bunch of voices on the margins that have something to say about that and that you should be listening to these folks because they actually lived it and, and they're living it. Um, so, so that's one of the reasons why we did that. But also... Because um, I also work with the Send Institute, which is a think tank for um, um, for North America, um, North American missiologists who who are thinking about how how's the way forward for the church in America, especially now in this time. So we did a survey, and we did a survey of Latino churches around the country, and we realized that the churches uh, were getting less money from church planting organizations, but they were doing more with less which is not mm -hmm. fair, right? I mean, they were, the great thing is that, yes, they were doing more with less, but they don't necessarily want to do more with less, right? right. So, so that's why we started um, Passion to Plant, so that we can have like a, a, a pathway for, for planters who, who already know that their experience is going to be different, that they may have already um, lived some of these different experiences. They may have already been through um, some kind of injustice. I mean, you know, it doesn't take long um, in America to experience some kind of injustice if you're black or brown. So, you know, we, we talk about how do you deal with that? How do you educate and begin a church that is just right from the start? Because it's much harder to change the ship mid midway. 
So it's better if you're thinking about, um, you know, having a just church, we believe that you should begin with that DNA from the beginning. And that starts with you re-educating and unlearning some things too. I think that's good. You hit a lot in that. So you really talked about some of the barriers that you faced um, in this as it relates to your leadership journey and, and church planning. But then also one of the things that I've um, I tend to mention and I hear you mention it a lot where, you know, when you start talking about um, the current church planning strategies that we have, even as we look to mission strategies, a lot of those are led by a certain specific group from our society, which are white evangelical men. And so just the um, pers- that, that lens and that perspective is so narrow and it leaves out so much. And, you know, as you talked about, even your work in seminary um, is, you know, it's very narrow in the books and the voices that you're hearing where we're missing this, this component of the global church voice, you know, in this work and it, and it points to some of the issues that we're having. So I I want you just to, to really hone in like that barrier when you start talking about some of the disparities um, that you're seeing with church planning um, as it relates to funds. And and I want you just to, to talk about that just a little bit more. Sure. So, you know, and I, and I feel, I feel the pain that some, you know, church planters uh, experience because, you know, when you're planting a church, you need money. That's, that's it. You need money. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, no matter in in our Latino tradition, a lot of the churches were started in living rooms and they were, you know, um, uh, from the living room, they went into maybe a warehouse and from the warehouse, they went to, uh, uh, you know, they just kept growing, but, um, and they were comfortable doing whatever it took. But now we have a certain kind of thinking that you have to go from, um, school or from training directly to a building sometimes. And even though this this age of COVID is teaching everybody, that is not the case. And it, it kind of flipped the script on everybody. But um, it, it a lot of planters, you know, they, they will align themselves with, a, with an organization, not looking at what their values are, not looking at what their leadership team looks like to see if anybody looks like them, um, not, not um, thinking about what is it that they teach, but just, just asking how much money do they give, you know? And sometimes that drives people to, even if they believe in women in ministry, they'll align themselves with a, a agency that says you cannot have a, a woman pastor if we give you money. And they sign on the dotted line because you know what? They need the money. And, mm. and it's, it's unfortunate that, that it, our people need money, but our people aren't the ones that give it, they're giving the money out. You know, mm. um, and, and if you look at church planting organizations around the country, there's really not many that have uh, a, a head, a brown or black person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, it's a shame, but, and forget about seeing a woman. So um, my organization is the only organization that has a woman in charge, a uh, brown woman in charge. So, you know, uh, it, tr- trust me, it ain't easy, but right. <laughs> right? Um, and you know right. about that. So I think for me, church planters need to kind of, and, and they have the time to do that now, to really reflect and, and think about, what, what kind of church do they want to plant? Um, it does not have to be a cookie cutter of what everybody says is successful. It, it doesn't have to be a celebrity church that they have to keep, um, you know, looking for that platform and the followers and everything. They just have to be faithful with those few and, and be transparent and be authentic. And in that process, they'll find their people, you know, and, and yes, they may never be a mega church, 
But maybe God doesn't want everybody to be a mega church. And I think we have to stop celebrating um, and exposing all the mega churches and all the celebrities. We never talk about the small church pastor who's been faithful doing that for 30 years and has been, you know, um, um, celebrating the births and, and grieving the deaths of their people for so many years, but they've been faithful. Um, so to me, church planters need to, to if they want to, if they want to align themselves with a church planting organization because they're the ones that have the money, I understand, but don't do it fully. Learn from the people that are like you. Learn from the people that have come from the places that you've come from. Learn from the voices on the margins. Have all of those voices in your toolbox so then you can draw from them when you are in those urban communities. Because it's not going to be a white evangelical that's going to help you talk to homeboy on the corner who, who um, doesn't want to hear about your gospel because he needs to, you know, get something else for, for that moment, you know? So I think... Um, uh, learning how to utilize both of all, and all the things that you have at your disposal and all the voices and then picking from there um, when you need it is, is crucial. Um, and, and, and definitely also, and I'll just say this because I've experienced it when black and Brown people go out and stick their neck out to start organizations and, and fundraise for their organization, it, you should support it because it's because most black and brown people still think that white is right. And that's the only thing that they can look up to. They, they, they usually support that more than they support their own. And that's why we don't end up having our own institutions where we can have a, 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 an opportunity to give money, to, to give influence and an authority to people. Because most of our people, sometimes they just decide that they don't want to. They don't believe in us enough. Dr. Rios, I mean, that's a whole, like right there, what you just hit, what you just said, that's a whole nother podcast. Like that is like, I mean, you're speaking truth when we talk about that, because we would have to peel back the layers on why, you know, and this, I mean, we, this can go back to, you know, um, people being discriminated, going to the doctor's office, but would refuse to go to the black doctor because they thought that it was inferior to the white doctor, but you're being treated like trash and, and you're being charged more, but you still won't visit the black doctor. I mean, so there's, there's some, there's a lot to uncover in that. So I see, I'm just relating that to what you're talking about as it relates to, um, the Latina community and when people are out there leading and creating organizations, um, we don't support them um, with, with funds because we feel like, and we have to be honest, like you feel like it's inferior mm-hmm. and that you feel like um, that, you know, what is created by white people is more superior. So that is the, the outworking, that is the active work of um, white supremacy. And that is called in, you know, internalized racism. So that's a big conversation that we got to continue to have. Um, but I think you even talked about some of your, the hope that you have for um, just the up and coming um, Latina leaders that you see um, as it relates to church planners, but just in general, people who are not in the church planning world, but maybe um, like my friend who was leading the organization um, to help military wives, like what, what message, you know, when you look at your community, what message of, 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 of hope and advice would you like to give um, just up and coming Latina leaders? Well, I would say that, you know, we're beautiful and, Mm. and we're anointed and we have power within us. God created us with 
a purpose in mind. And we don't have to wait to kiss anybody's ring to mm-hmm. step out and do what God called us to do. We're always waiting on the sidelines um, to see if someone sees us and then gives us the, the authority to do what God called us to do. But if God is the one that is sovereign and knows all and, is, and has authority in our lives, he already gave us that permission. So why are we waiting around? Years are going by, not doing what God wants us to do because we're waiting for someone else. And again, usually uh, those people, um, you know, in dominant culture who have power and influence and money to, to, to kind of pick us out from the lot and say, okay, you're worthy. We are already worthy. We are already anointed to do what God has called us to do. But we have to start believing that for ourselves. If we do not believe that for ourselves, then there's nothing, nothing that can be done for us. We have to believe what God says about us, not what other people say or don't say about us. And I think that's the key. And then once you realize that, you have everything you need to go forth and make a difference in this world. That's a good word. Now, as we get ready to close here, I just want, you know, um, you know, we talked about some of the barriers and just, you know, um, some of the things that are happening. But I also want to see, you know, want you to talk about, like, where do you see um, justice, um, you know, restorative justice and mercy working in the world today? Where do you see that happening? Oh, I, I, I see it happening on the streets. I see it. I see it happening where where they don't get the the time cover or the outreach magazine cover or the social media posts. I see it happening every day with people just stepping out and doing what they want for other people and knowing that they're the ones that make the difference. Um, you know, I see it when a, when a, a, a planter who doesn't even have enough money to pay the rent now is stepping out every day to help people in his community to get fed, to get medical services, to be driven to different places. I see it every day when a, when a, a member of our congregation decides that they're going to step out and, and even put themselves in a place of, of um, harm just to make sure that the elderly have food in their kitchen. So, you know, I, I see it every day. And even before this COVID-19 situation happened, mm-hmm. it was happening everywhere where people were dreaming of God's best idea for the world. They believed in it enough to, to, to strive for it. And I believe that that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to, to continue to strive for it, even though there are days when we get knocked down, even though there, there are days when, when something doesn't work out the way we had hoped. Every time we step out and, and, and act in, in love and act in kindness and act as an instrument of change in our world, we're, we're showing mercy and God's love to people in ways that may never be celebrated, but it is celebrated in heaven. Right. That's beautiful. I think right now, as we're recording this podcast, we're in the midst of a pandemic, um, COVID-19, that's really impacting, um, you know, brown and black communities. Um, You know, how I just wanted you to just add a little bit, um, just, you know, we know and understand the racial disparities and why we're seeing um, higher numbers in um, our communities. Um, but I would just want you to speak to that just a little bit before we close out. Sure. You know, um, there was a book written. I don't remember when it was. Um, it was written by uh, a Veronica Squires. It, it was called How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick. 
And um, so even before COVID-19, you know, we there are people who are living in neighborhoods that were not um, set up to have wellness, to not have um, uh, the, the structures that they needed to be healthy. So now when something like this happens, when this pandemic happens, um, and of course, you know, uh, it, it took us by surprise. It didn't take God by surprise, but still in all, the 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 um, unjust structures were not ready for for this, and I believe that as as we go forward, I'm hoping anyway that people will pay attention to the to the things that we were shouting about before this pandemic happened, and start to do something that will um, make a difference and make our neighborhoods not sick, but make our neighborhoods well, and 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 be part of the full circle of of um, of the health model, you know, and provide not only the scholarship, but the volunteerism or the partnerships that they can create in their, in their neighborhoods with churches and nonprofit organizations and, and others who are interested to, to bring that full circle health to their communities. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's going to be injustice on this side of heaven, but it doesn't mean that we can't work together to have learning, to have um, better education and to, treat our people better so that there's they're living healthy lives and and can and, and that we can address whatever social ills are happening in our under-resourced neighborhoods to to make a difference. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So, as we close, I want to as we talk about all these great things that are happening and then also some of the barriers and obstacles and just um, it's incredible to have great leaders like yourself that are on the front lines that are leading, that are using your voice to uplift, not just your community, but um, all communities. And so I think that's imperative and looking at your um just the work that you've done just thus far, you know, um, in all of this, in so many different spaces with the local church, with community, with leaders, all of that is just incredible. Um, if, you know, I, I love to do this myself, but like, if we could just dream for a moment, you know, um, you know, of things, and I do this a lot, um, if we can just dream, and if there were no barriers, no money limits, no obstacles, um, what problem would you solve today? Like if there was just um, no obstacles that, you know, are, are limits or reality in that sense. So in your world, your made up world, um, what problem would you solve um, today? Well, if you that's, just a loaded, a that's a loaded bit? one. I know, I know, I know it is. I know it is. There's so many things that we would want to address, but I guess because I'm coming from the church planter world, to be specific with that, I would love to be able to fund every um, well-thought-out, justice-oriented church so that they wouldn't have to worry about about money and selling out their, their, their values and their principles just to get it. That's good. That's good. That's what I wanted to get at. You know, it's just, you know, it's just that one thing. I know there's several things, but that one thing that you're passionate about, if there were no obstacles um, and money wasn't a limit that you would do, because that that vision alone is connected to so much. And so yes. I feel like sometimes if we speak those things into the world, speak those things that are not. Yes. As they are, I, I would love know, it. I would do I would do a, a plant tank, you know, like the shark tank. I would do a plant tank. Yeah, a plant tank. I love it. I love okay. it. I, I love that it. idea. Church plant tank. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, that would be great. I, I would be great. So, you know, um, 
I love this conversation with you. And those of you who heard it, this is um, Dr. Elizabeth um, Rios, and she is here live with us talking about um, the Latina voice and leadership, um, talking about church planning and justice and the outworkings of that. So uh, we want to lean into these voices. And as we said, it's like if we we have to make sure that we're not living in these boxes that are exclusive or, you know, are not including um, a variety of voices. We need to learn from all people. And so we want to do that. We want to bring just some brilliant minds and voices to your ears um, each time that we have this conversation. And so thank you today for joining us. And we are so grateful to have you here today. Thank you for listening. For more bridge building resources, visit our website at be the bridge.com. 